Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NELA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the Board of Directors of NELA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. Welcome back to Employee to Lawyer. I'm Max Barrett. And I'm Ahmed Bindra. And we're doing another solo episode today. We wanted to talk about a couple of minor legislative or just governmental changes that have happened recently that affect employment law or may affect employment law. We're going to try to get to the bottom of that. Yeah. So what happened with the IWPCA? So we found out yesterday that Governor Pritzker signed the bill yesterday, July 10th, I think. No, God, two days ago now, July 9th. Wow. COVID has continued to impede my ability to know what day it is. Everything continues to blend together. What what is the bill? Maybe let's back up for a second. Yeah, so it's HB 118. It is the bill that amends the Illinois Wage Payment and Collection Act, the Wage Act, to increase the statutory penalties from 2% monthly to 5% monthly interest. So effective immediately, so the day he signs it, so let's call it Friday, July 9th, that bill is now in effect. So the law now on the Wage Act, moving forward, if somebody violates that law today, tomorrow, at any point moving forward, those statutory penalties begin to accrue at 5% per month. And do you have a thought about the answer to this question, which is, let's say they violated the law in December of 2019. What is the interest penalty looking like for that situation? That's a real good question. I think you and I were kicking this around earlier. My reading of it and the case law that I've seen not it's not recent case law and i'm not doing it much justice because i don't remember the title or any of it i just remember there being some discussion of where you have a statute like this where there are ongoing penalties that accrue this is a substantive change to the law and not procedural so i if memory serves i could be speaking way out of out of turn here for that reason you can't apply it retroactively however for cases like the ones you and i were talking about where you've got a, a wage act violation some time ago that the case has not yet been resolved. So under the law, the the penalties continue to accrue. You know, through Friday, you've got 2% interest, but somebody's going to have to rig up a very clever uh, formula in my Excel spreadsheet that does my damage calculations because it's going to have to be, I think, two sets of penalties there for that same or two, two different interest rates on the same violation. I think you're right about that. And I think that's likely what's going to happen is you could have an employee who's owed wages, let's say starting in January of 2021, And for the first six months of the year, it's at a 2% interest rate, and then it changes to 5%. But, you know, one thing is we'll probably find out pretty soon. We all have cases right now going on that involve the Wage Act. And so in those situations, there is going to be this bifurcation potentially of the interest rate. Yeah, I mean, I don't think, I don't, I don't see much of a legal argument in the other direction where they somebody can argue it remains at 2% on that case because the law was pretty clear. It is effective immediately. So I don't know how you could continue to accrue under the 2%. The only way that makes sense for me is that you just have to figure out a change in the interest rate midway through your case, basically. Yeah, I agree. And in, in, in a weird way, it's, it's not too difficult because it's on a monthly basis. So that it all you do in your Excel it's spreadsheet, basically, or the calculation is changed to 2 to a 5. And hopefully that would make the math a little bit easier to figure out. Yeah, or maybe you start the violation, you maybe you rejigger it so that the, the violation starts today and you just start at whatever the last number was. Exactly. Two, That's another way 5% to do it. And you go from there. Like I said, somebody who's much better at working Excel and computer savvy than I will, will have an answer to this. Or me too. Well, thanks again for all the work you did on this. I know 
the NEAL Legislative Committee, you, Maureen Salas, and a couple other folks are very instrumental in getting this passed. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to give Maureen a lot of credit because the way I had been thinking about this law and the damages was was not complete. And Maureen made a really good point when she testified something that I think has always been there. It just wasn't something I thought about, which is think about the low wage worker who's impacted by this bill, you know, and misses a paycheck who lives paycheck to paycheck. What are the down the downstream implications to that violation, right? So you miss your paycheck, you're late on your rent, you, you pay a penalty. I don't know, 30, 40 bucks, I think is standard nationwide. Your ComEd bill is late. You owe a 30, 40, $50 penalty on that. Your gas bill is late. You know, the 2% doesn't necessarily resolve that. 5% may not either, but at least this way, you can hear my little girl upstairs, I think. Daria is very talkative today. She had swimming lessons at 8 a.m. today, so she's a lot more awake than mommy and dad. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it was cold and wet, but Daria was giggling and splashing the whole time. It was I'm sure she loved that. Yeah, she did. But yeah, no. So, you know, for those people, the the penalties, I mean, that's why the 5% was important because there is no emotional distress. There is no accounting for those other violations or those other penalties you suffer. So that 5% is is meant to help with that sort of thing. Yeah. And we've talked about this on other episodes too. It, it is really easy to not pay someone properly because if it's not a high enough number, for the individual. So for the folks that you and Maureen were just talking about, it's hard to get an attorney. It's hard to get into court. There has to be more of an incentive. And so for those are the people, these types of laws are really meant to protect because those are the people that need um, the biggest protection and have the most to lose a lot of times too, even if their numbers or wages are lower. Exactly. Well, the, the consequences to losing that money is bigger for them. Exactly. So, you know, another, again, big thank you to Maureen for, for, pointing that out to everybody, to Representative Will Gazzard, Senators Ron Villavalam and Karina Villa for carrying it, and to Governor Pritzker for signing that in. Just for context, Biden recently signed an executive order. And so there's been a lot of headlines going around, and I've gotten text messages and calls and stuff along the lines of President Biden just banned non-compete agreements. Well, he really didn't. What he did was, and candidly, I haven't been able to find a text of the executive order, but this is just based on even what the White House website says about his remarks. What he did was he's encouraging the FTC or the Federal Trade Commission to either limit or ban non-competes. But candidly, we don't really know what that means. There's so much that can go within that. What we don't know is, can the FTC even do this? Um, I was going to say, what kind of authority do they have to do that at the state level? Yeah. And so this is something we've mentioned before, too, about how employment law touches on a much broader area of stuff than people realize. This is definitely above both of our pay grades, I think, which is agency law. Can the FTC step in and prevent a business in DuPage County from having a non-compete agreement? So that's something we have to find out. I, I know DuPage County will probably tell you they don't have that kind of exactly. <laughs> so that's one thing. Can the FTC do this? And there was a- It's government overreach, Amit. Yeah, I get it. And so there was a panel conversation with the FTC about this question. Can they do something like this? And I think what they determine the answer to that is going to also define in terms of what are they going to do? Because we don't actually know that. Is this going to be a broad thing or a narrow thing? And that leads to the second question of banning or limiting non-competes is a very vague and ambiguous statement. Non-competes, I think sometimes they're lumped into things like confidentiality clauses, non-solicitation clauses. Cool down, cool down periods that you're paid for, right? Exactly. Cool down periods. So there's a bunch of stuff that can go under that umbrella. We don't know what their scope is going to be. We also don't know who they're going to target. Are they targeting everyone? Are they targeting folks who make minimum wage? Is there going to be some place in between? So that's another outstanding question. We just have no idea. Um, 
another factor in all of this is what is the enforcement mechanism going to look like? Are they going to themselves file lawsuits? Are there going to be attorney fees provisions, other penalty provisions? These were all things when we were trying to pass the law here in Illinois that we were thinking about. So that law bans non-competes for a certain threshold. For the remaining bucket of folks, there's clarity in terms of what the law does, but then there are there's an attorney's fees provision and there's a mechanism for the attorney general's office to get involved. We don't know if the FTC will do something similar. And I think the last outstanding question is, we don't know how long this process is going to take. The way I understand this stuff, and this goes back to the point about this is an agency situation and it's not my area of expertise. I think they have to first promulgate some rules, which means they may have to put out a research paper first. Then they have to provide notice so folks can understand what they're doing before the rules are implemented. So that could be anywhere from maybe six months to two, three years. It's unclear. And so that's another aspect of this that is just completely uncertain. Yeah, I mean, for the attorneys listening out there, I'm sure many of us will think back to our legislation courses on you know, you, you read the Chevron case that where the Supreme Court says federal agencies under the executive branch of the government obviously have the authority to set forth rules and regulations that interpret certain statutes, depending on the administration and the uh, population of the Supreme Court, that that authority waxes and wanes from now and, now and again, and which agency we're deciding is or is not arbitrarily overexerting its authority. But, you know, when you actually want to implement a rule, right, there's all these comment periods, you have to actually do diligence. If memory serves, that's why quite a few of our last president's attempts to reform certain regulatory rules on the fly quickly didn't work out because I think if he'd actually followed procedure and doing whatever the heck he wanted, he might've gotten away with a lot of those changes, but because some of that stuff just happened so seat of the pants and seemingly arbitrarily, that gave the courts a reason to, to block that stuff. 100%. And I, I've seen some tea leaves that there are members of the current Supreme Court who want to change kind of that Chevron process. So I don't know, maybe this is a test case, maybe something will happen before this, but it wouldn't surprise me too if there are some new court decisions about whether or not the FTC could do something like this. So I think big picture, there's a lot of uncertainty about what will and can happen. And as of right now, it's probably too early to know. I do think though, and we were talking about this before uh, recording, I think there's some interesting things about stuff like this. I think it leads to this conversation nationally, which may have some trickle down effects at the state level. So in, in 2017, the Obama administration did a great job about starting this conversation. They had put out survey data. They had started a conversation about should we be banning non-compete agreements and that sort of thing. Since 2014 and since all that stuff started happening, you've had legal changes in a lot of states, in Washington state, Massachusetts, Washington, D.C., the city, Illinois. And so this could lead to more of that. And I think that's where I think there's some level of hope that even if President Biden can't ban non-competes, it eventually leads to the same spot of we're head trending in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, I almost think about it like the way marijuana, at least in some states, is slowly but surely starting to become legalized. You have one state do it, then you have other states start to do it for medicine and or like uh, marriage equality. I remember too, like you start with a couple states that have civil unions and obviously we're talking about civil rights and social justice and one, I mean, we consider ourselves at some level civil rights lawyers, though I think covenants not to compete don't necessarily always um, come to the forefront of people's minds in that vein, but it is an economic justice issue at times. Yeah, and that's a great point too. This is one place where the non-compete stuff and what President Biden is doing is definitely different than the IWPCA amendment, where there it's a simple, almost, you know, 
it's going to benefit the employee and almost entirely. It's not necessarily going to benefit the employer. Non-competes, there's room for bipartisanship because companies have to be able to hire employees. Employee mobility is generally good for competition. It's good for new startups, et cetera. And bigger fish can definitely make it hard for smaller companies to be able to get talent, recruit talent, and build their own base. And so there is an opportunity here to work together where I think other aspects of employment law there sometimes isn't. Yeah, I mean, do you get a sense of where the main opposition to non-compete reform industry-wise come? Like, are there specific industries you've encountered or through the legislative work you did in, in pursuing the reform bill that you were so instrumental in getting passed? Like, are there certain industries where this stuff is more prevalent, where they are the ones or some of the main drivers of the opposition? And so that's a, that's an interesting question, too, because when we worked on this, we got the Chamber of Commerce to agree on pretty comprehensive reform. And part of that is because they have businesses who need to be able to hire talent. And the last thing they want is to be stuck in a lawsuit over a non-compete issue. These things are prevalent across the board. There was survey data, I believe, in 2019 that almost every industry now is using a non-compete. It was thought about as like maybe only certain sectors like tech, but you know, it's definitely in construction, it's definitely in medicine, it's across the board. I know just from personal experience, you definitely see these in finance, you definitely see them with medicine. I think the biggest opposition group is probably larger companies because they can kind of bear the cost of litigation and they can kind of, you know, that type of thing. Monopolies, I think, benefit from these, from these types of clauses because it makes it harder for an employee to leave and go to a new company. There is data that employees are, I think, 10% more likely, maybe 11%, I don't remember the exact figure, to stay with their current company if they have a non-compete. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Can't go anywhere. Yeah. I mean, I think in places I don't do, you know, non-compete work in the same way you do, although I sometimes am asked to evaluate them or look them over. And the places I've seen, I know Amazon has an, an extremely aggressive one for its office level employees. Um, I believe there are their 18 months. And you're right. I think they're pretty aggressive. And this goes back to, to what the FTC, I think, is going to do in this context from an enforcement standpoint. So, for example, California has banned non-compete agreements. But a lot of times, California businesses will have them. They will still send a letter to a former employee saying, hey, you have a non-compete. You can't go work for a competitor. They just won't file a lawsuit. So they get the benefit sometimes of the chilling effect from a non-compete of preventing an employee from going someplace else without actually having to file a lawsuit because they're not enforceable. But employees just don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think, look, with a lot of things are, I mean, collection agencies are very effective with that, where you have employers who will get garnishment notices sometimes, right? Because somebody's got child support or they're just in debt and, you know, employers, the stuff they send out, I mean, it's a reason why we have laws like the Fair Credit Reporting Act and Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, right? Because collectors are very savvy and they'll send stuff to employers. And it's my understanding employers don't have to comply unless there's a court order. But like, if you're not the savviest of employer, right, you might still end up getting suckered into that and your employee might end up, you know, even where something doesn't have force of law necessarily doesn't mean it's not going to end up working out the way somebody intends. Yeah, no. So, I mean, that'll be interesting. It'll be good to see where that goes. I mean, as somebody who's not nearly as knee deep in this area of practice as you, to me, it it's a well-intentioned, I guess, executive order to encourage the regulatory authority of the executive branch to use its, you know, flex its muscles and do what it can to help people. Practically, I get the sense that A, we won't know for a long time whether this does anything, and B, to the extent it does, it's not clear this is going to have a huge impact. 100%. As a nerd, I'm kind of curious to see how this goes, both from a, it's a law standpoint, like what is the law going to be? What is it going to look like? How it's put together? 
but then also from an agency standpoint of what can the FTC do here? So from that standpoint, I think it's interesting and fascinating to think about, but from a pragmatic standpoint, I don't think it's gonna do too much besides just continue the conversation we've basically been having for the last seven years across the country. That makes sense. Let's switch gears one more time and just talk about a law that we're a little late to the party in talking about this one, but good news is for us, it only just recently got signed even though it was passed a while ago. And that is SB 1847, which Governor Pritzker signed in Illinois, which will require larger businesses, so businesses with 100 or more employees, to begin providing the Illinois Department of Labor with equal pay information, Mm -hmm. basically EEO-type information about how its employees are paid and related important information about their race, ethnicity, gender, and how that relates to, to their pay scale and hourly work. So it's essentially a law requiring employers to provide equal pay information to the department, which in theory, like the Workplace Transparency Act, which we're going to talk about soon in an upcoming episode, requires employers to proactively provide information to labor-related or employment-related agencies, which could in theory open them up to exposure down the road. Yeah. And what I'm finding fascinating about this one, there were really two things. One is the timing with COVID. I know we've seen a lot I think COVID and the pandemic generally impacted women workers a lot more than male workers. And so the passage of this coupled with that timing, I think is good. And then two, I want to say over the last two, three years, we've had now three or four amendments to the Equal Pay Act in Illinois. And so that trend, I think is going in the right direction. Yeah, I think that's an area where state, you know, they always talk about states are the the laboratories of democracy, though sometimes lately it feels more like they're the meth labs of democracy. Um, I agree. <laughs> some of the stuff, depending on what state we're talking about, but, but the Equal Pay Act is great. I mean, it's the one, it's the one type of disparate treatment case that I, that I feel gives employees a leg up in those cases where we don't have the same intent requirements we have to show to advocate for employees. And the state law is like, like a lot of state civil rights laws is much broader than federal law does not just deal with gender, but gives you the opportunity to apply the same standards though it's very limited in how it addresses race. I think it is specifically limited to African-Americans, not just a race-based claim. I think that's right. But that was one of the recent amendments. And I think one of the other amendments was just preventing employers from asking about salary history to allow employees more room to negotiate better compensation. And and coupled with another law, not this one, but a separate amendment, I believe to the Human Rights Act, preventing employers from asking in certain industries about criminal history. Um I mean, I think you can see where this stuff is going, right? The idea here is to make the job application process at the, at the surface level, less discriminatory on the front end, and then making sure that there are steps beyond the starting point, right? To make sure that employers are taking steps to keep pay more equitable. That's a great point too. Cause I think a lot of times each of these individual things, even that we're talking about in this episode today kind of get lost. You know, you have this minor change potentially to the IWPCA. You have these new Biden potential rules from the FTC. You have this EPA amendment. But when you stack it all on top of each other, over the last two, three years, there's been a lot of movement in the right direction to just balancing the playing field a little bit for employees to make things a little bit easier when it is slanted against them. And so that's it's just another thing on that pile. When I think about what we do for a living and how how rare it is where we come into a situation and somebody keeps their job or gets reinstated. You know, we're, I almost think of us in the same way they talk about, we need more police on the streets to prevent crime. It's like, well, police tend not to actually prevent the crime. They arrive after the crime has happened and hopefully investigate it in an equitable way. 
leave it there. But like, this is the one of the few, these are now steps that allow us to actually fix things proactively rather than arriving at the end and trying to get money for somebody who's already been harmed irreparably. When can, you made this point at the very beginning, candidly, these shouldn't really be that controversial. If someone isn't paid properly, they're not, we're not asking for emotional distress damages or anything like that. It's just an interest rate because there's a delay in them getting paid and that has stuff that's caused other consequences. Or it's the same thing here. It's just making sure people are paid properly across the board and not differently based upon race or gender. Yeah. And I like the idea that, you know, whenever somebody's got to certify for something or you're going to have to start keeping records, this, this is a good thing because it makes employers actually keep track of this stuff and keep records of how it's paying people and continue on an ongoing basis to make sure they're doing it right. You know, laws like this, laws like the Workplace Transparency Act's requirement that you have to report sexual harassment. It might be all discrimination-based settlements over, I, is it just sexual I harassment? I thought it was just sexual harassment, but maybe it is broader. I don't, we might be wrong about that. But the one thing I also like about that law that people don't realize sometimes is it, for in most situations, it's going to give employees 21 days to review a severance or separation agreement. And there are definitely been times I've worked with folks who are getting one day, three days, seven days, they don't have time to go talk to an attorney and negotiate that separation package or more basically understand what it means. And so a simple change of changing that to 21 days is actually really valuable because then folks kind of know what they're signing and gives them an opportunity to negotiate things. It's changes like that that don't necessarily seem quite as flashy on paper as like some, look, look, the Supreme Court's decision last year on Bostock changing the way we look at Title VII, you know, we now have sexual orientation and gender identity based on Bostock and the other decision, it's, it's a Sunday, so now that's escaping me too. But, you know, those are big sweeping changes that at a, at a, at a, at a macro level look and are really, really important. Also, little things like this can make an astronomical difference in the big picture for the reasons you're describing. Yep. A hundred percent. The one last thing I'll say is we're recording this on the Sunday before the Bucks play game three. So hopefully they win tonight. I got to get shout that out, in there. Shout out to Giannis's knee. Yeah. Yeah. That was going to be my shout out to the Antetokounmpo family. So, well, thank you all for listening. Please subscribe and share, uh, to that end, to those who are unfamiliar or not quite as used to Apple Podcasts or whatever, Google is your friend. We would love for you to subscribe. We would love if you use Facebook or LinkedIn to share this with folks, help people learn about Neela, Illinois, learn about employment law, and feel free to reach out if you'd like to come on and talk about anything. Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host's opinion. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.